What up, Genius Life crew? Another week, another hour we get to spend together. Quick question before we get started. Have you had a chance to head over to thegeniuslife.com to check out all of our new merch? I can't believe the Genius Life family now has merch. It's just so beyond cool. It's like I'm partially living out my dreams of joining a boy band. Just kidding. I've always envisioned myself as a solo artist. My merch line is packed with all the essentials needed to rep the Genius Life beyond your headphones and podcast app. A personal favorite of mine is the tie-dye hoodie. The revival of tie-dye is one of the best things that happened in 2020. I also love having the fanny pack. I throw it across diagonally and suddenly I'm the epitome of LA street style. But in all seriousness, this fanny pack is great for hikes, traveling, grocery store runs. When you have a moment, take a look at thegeniuslife.com and let me know what you think and what you're most excited about. Maybe even send a few not so subtle hints to those you'll be exchanging gifts with this year. And now, welcome to episode 137 of The Genius Life. We made it. We're back, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. Guess who's back? Back again. We have the extraordinary Anya Fernald. Anya and I could chat for hours, and I'm so excited to share our most recent conversation. Anya is the co-founder and CEO of Belcampo. Belcampo operates 27,000 acres of organic farmland in California and processes its own livestock for sale in its own butcher shops and restaurants. Anya has been recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 100 female founders, one of the 40 under 40 by Food and Wine, named a Nifty 50 by the New York Times, and has been profiled in The New Yorker, and it just doesn't end, has served as a regular judge on Iron Chef America since 2009. Anya's debut cookbook, Home Cooked, was released in spring 2016, and it is wonderful. This episode is so meaty with knowledge. I promise that the knowledge Anya delivers is better than my weak meat pun. Anya shares her strategy for developing the superpower of resistance to hyperpalatable foods that wreck your health. We discuss the quality of life differences between animals that are factory farmed and animals raised by Belcampo, and how this translates into product integrity and price experienced by the end consumer. A few months back, I participated in Belcampo's meat camp, and it was legendary and so eye-opening. Anya also, thank goodness, offers her secrets for optimally nutritious and delicious homemade bone broth. We also chat about the health and cosmetic benefits of enjoying a weekly braise. And it wouldn't be an episode with Anya if we didn't talk about the differences between suet, tallow, and marrow, and their practical uses. Anya's wealth of knowledge is truly so powerful. I love whenever I get to sit down and chat with her. It also doesn't hurt that when she comes to recordings of The Genius Life, she brings Belcampo Campo's food with her. And in this case, she brought Belcampo's new meatballs and carnitas. Anya had the whole Genius Life team huddled around my cast iron skillet taste test in carnitas and meatballs. Spoiler alert, they were so darn good. So go head over to belcampo.com to get you some. This episode of The Genius Life is sponsored by my friends over at Ned. I'm so thrilled to reunite with Ned on this podcast and the timing could not be better. As the holidays approach, you might be safely traveling to visit friends and family. And while the holidays bring so much joy into the end of the year, they also can bring a wee bit of stress. And that's where Ned comes in. Ned produces the highest quality full spectrum CBD oil extracted from organically grown hemp plants. My favorite part of Ned is that they share third party lab reports, who farms their products, their extraction process. It's all right there on the site. Talk about transparency. And when it comes to CBD, choosing the right one can be difficult. And that's why I value Ned. Their transparency is unparalleled. If you want to check out Ned and try their CBD for yourself, they have a special offer for the Genius Life family. Go to helloned.com slash genius 
or enter Genius at checkout for 15% off your first one-time order or 20% off your first subscription order plus free shipping. That's helloned.com slash genius to get 15% off of your first one-time order or 20% off of your first subscription order plus free shipping. All right, team, when you wash your hands, what song do you sing? You know a song to help make sure you've successfully washed your hands for the full 20 seconds? My song of choice is No Scrubs by TLC. The chorus is exactly 20 seconds long. The only thing better than singing when I'm washing my hands is the fact that I'm using Public Goods hand soap. Public Goods is my one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to hand soap, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Consumer. Public Goods was kind enough to offer an exclusive discount deal for the Genius Life podcast listeners. Receive $15, $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident that you'll absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15, $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash max or use code max at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash max to receive $15, $15 off your first order. Once you've received your public goods, holla at me with your favorite 20 second hand washing song. Can't wait to hear what you pick. Alrighty, team, we're about to jump into all things meat and Belcampo with Anya. But before we do, I want to share an amazing iTunes review from someone in our Genius Life family. Side note, y'all have been crushing the reviews and I so appreciate it. I really get so much joy out of this podcast and hearing what you all have to say makes me oh so happy. Baja Linda states, like all of your episodes, this was such an excellent interview. I listen while I walk, so I was scrambling to pause and try to write down the supplements mentioned. Will you try and post episode notes and links? Baja Linda, thanks so much for your review and I love that you're moving while listening. That's so great. And to answer your question, Yes, you can always find show notes and links on my website. Just head over to maxlugavir.com slash podcast. We have a ton of great references on the website for each episode. If you don't find the answer that you're looking for, text me. You can join the text community by texting genius to 310-299-9401. I really look forward to hearing from you there. I've had so much fun with this text community. So shoot me a text and we can chat. All right, guys, with all that out of the way, let's move on to episode 137 with the wonderful Anya Fernald. You can also watch this episode on my YouTube channel if you so choose, YouTube com slash Max Lugavere. Just getting through this introduction, I'm already craving the new Belcampo Carnitas that came right to my door. I was so lucky, you guys. I hope you enjoy this week's episode as much as I did taping it. Here we go. Thanks for being here, Anya. Thank you for having me it's, back. Of course. You're, the first time you were on the show, it was such a hit of an episode. You just came on and like a boss, you dropped so much knowledge about how meat can be good for you, how it can be good for the environment. So I kind of wanted to have you back on almost to have like a sequel of sorts. And also because we're friends and I love you. Love you too. <laughs> I'm ready. Part two. Part two. Let's do it. So for listeners who maybe have not yet listened to the first episode, um, let's just start with your background. Like, what do you do? I co-founded and run Belcampo. We're a ranch to table livestock operation. So we sell premium organic uh, carbon impact positive meats directly to consumers. Now, after COVID, a lot of that is through e-com um, and grocery. We also have restaurant and butcher shops. But broadly, we're looking to sell directly to consumers a meat that's really, really high quality and um, farm in the, in, the, in the right way, regeneratively, with an attention to the soil quality, soil health, and animal wellness as a underpinning of human wellness. It's amazing. I've been up to your farm and I saw firsthand what you guys are doing. It's incredible. 
Like the cows are treated like queens. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's a pretty magical operation. I mean, the 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 piece that's interesting is that often when you do the right thing on the ag side, the the right thing happens on the taste side. You know, so I think it's important to say we do it for the right reason, but it also tastes much better um, by going slow. And that's like in my own background, you know, working early in my career in Europe, a lot of what I saw was very traditional agriculture, the slow going, old fashioned ways of doing things tended to just yield the best quality products. So we've, you know, in the U.S., we've kind of started to confound hyper palatability with deliciousness. Mm. Okay, but if you unpack that, if you educate yourself to detach hyperpalatability from deliciousness and you relearn deep nutrition, you relearn how to taste things for flavor and health, when you take yourself down that learning path, you're going to learn to taste for for nutrition and you're going to gravitate to products that are farmed in the way that Belcampo farms. I mean, it's truly intuitive eating, right? Like being able to listen to the signals that your body is giving you by way of your taste buds mm -hmm. and your stomach which is something that i think that that whole system that whole machinery gets short-circuited in the in the you know in the modern food environment so this is something that i have in started to practice in my life that's a little i'm obviously pretty woo lady but like what i started to do you know i used to think of cravings as something that was bad. You know, like cravings are for sugar, cravings are for carbs, like you want to avoid cravings. But now I've started to really look at my cravings. And sometimes I'll do it if I'm hungry. And I'll like, think about different foods and just say, what, what's like really deeply appealing to me right now? You know, it's just kind of a funny question to ask yourself, like just saying like, a lot of times, don't want, I don't want sugar or something. Okay, just put that aside on you. But like, look at look at what's in your fridge and say what's deeply and sometimes it is sugar and they'll go with it. But like, that's an interesting thing to kind of educate yourself around is like what is like feels like it's going to be deeply gratifying right now. It's not going to really be ever too surprising, but sometimes you're going to find some things that end up sinking in really well. Because sometimes I think we force ourselves to eat what we think we should eat. And then we say, but paying attention to what I want is what I need to do. Because that's willpower, you know, saying no to what you want. But if you can reconfigure want as like deep need and nutritional need, you can actually turn into kind of a superpower on nutrition. You're so right. I do that sometimes and I find that a lot of the times what I want is just something to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I eat a lot of the time uh, out of boredom um, or just being in, in close proximity to my kitchen. But yeah, I can totally appreciate that oftentimes we have these um, sub-perceptual signals of nutrient yearning mm -hmm. that um, maybe get sort of disguised as just wanting to eat sugar and carbs and, and and rapidly digested easily accessible foods but i think yeah if you can if you can unpack that there's probably some some deeper wisdom there so there's all this neat like research around goats that shows that they will when they when they have stomach issues just naturally gravitate towards bitter herbs hmm. and and seek out bitter herbs in a pasture with lots of different types of herbs so there's you know in nature animals had that you know that sort of like intuition of like my stomach hurts so i'm going to have something with an natural antimicrobial because we know bitter herbs all have a heavy antimicrobial days so i'm going to go for things that are naturally antimicrobial as an animal so i think that you and i as humans still have that in us 
we see it in our animals and our pastures, right? But we still have that kind of, of, of intuition. So it's something I've really liked. And there's certain things you can coach yourself to do, you know, and there's certain things like for me, bone broth in the morning wasn't always my craving, but it's become enough of like a health elixir for me that I'm like, I do crave it now because I crave the result. I crave the calm. Like I crave the, the, the feeling that I get as a result of doing the right thing in the morning, which is like go kind of heavy on the protein in the AM and I'm going to feel good all day. So you can kind of coach that through willpower. But I think the end result's interesting to explore because you, if you kind of give yourself that optionality to say, you know, it's not about a meal plan, but it's about like what, what exactly am I craving right now? It can yield good fruit. Yeah. So let's talk about cooking. What in terms of the bone broth that you consume every morning, what is that? Okay. I, of course, sell bone broth at Belcampo and often I do consume that bone broth, but I also cook a lot because I do all the social media for Belcampo, a lot of those, you know, in my own social and also just I do R&D for our company, you know, so we were downstairs tasting meatballs. That's a product that I developed with our team. Like, so I'm, I cook a lot. It's also my stress relief and I love it, but I love my bone broth jam lately I've been putting tongue in bone broth because tongue. tongue has tons of collagen in it. Wow. Um, and it adds a really nice viscosity. So I love a beef and, and poultry blend. I also like to put shiitake and flavorful mushrooms into bone broth. Um, I typically make it out of roasted bones. And I also will infuse it at the end with a ton of fresh ginger. So then it's like I make mine incredibly concentrated. Sometimes I'll cut like half and half with Belcampo broth and then leftovers. But, you know, when I'll, I roast chicken a lot and I'll just keep all the scraps from that, you know, I'll usually spatchcock it. So cut the spinal cord out first, keep that raw in the fridge. Maybe I've got two spinal cords in the fridge, then toss those together with all my leftover bones and make that broth. Now, that's an interesting thing because, you know, if you look at a chicken like our chickens at Belcampo are like $25 right? It's incredibly expensive, hmm. which is, you know, amazing because it, you know, at a lot of kind of high-end organic groceries, you'll see a whole roast chicken, is, you know, $8 or something, right? So it's cooked and everything. It's amazing to me. The efficiencies in chicken are tremendous, hmm. which, you know, I think many consumers see that and they're like, okay, well, I can't afford the good chicken, but the good, the better beef I can. I look at it differently. I think, well, the one with the greatest price discrepancy is probably the one that you as a consumer should be most kind of concerned about hmm. right because if they're so vastly it's not like all the chicken farmers in the small alternative world are, are just making bank the reason why it's so much more expensive is that raising it holistically is just so much more expensive so it's typically like four times what it costs for like a regular organic chicken for a pastured organic chicken like a bill campbell one i mean that's always blown my mind so i'm glad that you brought it up when i go to even like a high-end supermarket you'll see an entire rotisserie chicken for six dollars so how are they able to produce that and cook it and bring it to market so cheaply so it's even more amazing because in the grocery stores, you look at there's multiple layers of margin there. So in the grocery store, the if the farmer sells it for $3, um, the grocery store is probably selling it for 9 or 10 And and their margin is still, you know, the 40%. It's that there's a distributor and a broker involved as well. So the, the with chicken in particular, what you got to think about is that the days, that it, for any animal, the days that it's alive is the cost. Hmm. Okay, that's really... and whatever cost per day is also important. So in the case of like a, you know, very intensive chicken farm, whatever the costs are per day, but broadly it's the length, it's the, the length of life is the major discrepancy between that supermarket chicken and a, and a farmer's market chicken. So a farmer's market chicken, like a Bill Campbell one is like 10 weeks to come to full age and maturity. So two and a half to three pounds, it'll take 10 weeks to grow from a little fluffy chick to that same weight. For a conventional ch chicken, even in an organic operation, 
it will take two and a half to three weeks. Hmm. Okay, so that number of days, it's just 4X. And that's actually, ironically, like exactly the price discrepancy that you and I just talked about, like $6 for the grocery store chicken and $24 for a Belkampo chicken, just six times four, right? Hmm. So it takes four times as long to grow. It costs four times as much because directionally, it's all the same inputs. You know, the chickens, they're monogastric. They have one digestive tract, so they eat nutritionally dense food, seeds, other animals, things like that. They can eat grass as well, but they don't eat much of it because they, just like us, they want the high fiber things as a supplement, not as the main source of calories. Hmm. So it, chicken though, it's just about the question of length of time. So the slow growing birds like we produce, they cost a lot more because they take a lot longer to grow. Those guys that are doing it organic, but in confinement, the reason it's growing so quickly is typically it's like kind of a, effectively like a stress response. You know, they're in a darkened environment. They don't move. Um, they're high cortisol levels and they're inactive. So of course they're going to gain weight and have an inflammatory response. Wow. So they're, so they're much younger than they're like younger chickens, mm -hmm. these cheap. That are much, much fatter. Yeah. And then it's also interesting because even with the same breeds, the body conformity is really different. This is the piece where I want more consumers to like connect the dots because in confinement animals, you see these like really indicative, um, uh, physiological characteristics that have to do with a large guts and puffy um <laughs> just to me it looks a lot like you know some of the especially in pigs hmm. right which is actually the most genetically similar to humans you actually get more of like adipose and visceral fat wow okay so it's exactly similar to obesity in humans yeah. you know and so it's they gain weight in these in these environments where the animals are sedentary um and they're under stress they actually gain weight in the same unhealthy ways that that humans do when they have similar kind of lifestyle. So it's kind of like a lifestyle <laughs> that's similar kind of effect on how your, your adipose and visceral fats aggregating. So whereas our, our um, chickens are going to be leaner and more muscular and they're, they're not going to have that same level of like visceral fat too. Actually, you know, the visceral fat's a key health indicator for humans, right? Something I track in myself and, yeah. and it's in, you actually see it in our birds. They just don't have that fat around the viscera. Wow. So Is it's very different. So you, you, your, your chicken, so I mean, in that's the, as a consumer, you need to be most, most worried when the expensive product is way more expensive, mm. right? Like, cause in, in the case of beef, I really shouldn't say this, but it's like, you know, it's different. It's 18 months versus 26 months. Okay. Like that's a big difference, but it's not two weeks versus 10 weeks. That's mm. like kind of terrifying, you know, to take the same kind of growth trajectory. Yeah. Right. So, but when getting down to the culinary side of that, so if I drop my 25 bucks on a chicken, there's no way I'm going to get four chickens of nutrition out of that. Right. That's impossible. But the question then becomes, okay, how do you actually make that worth it? Right. And so how, one thing that you, you will learn if you go down and start to try these different types of products is that slower growing musculature also yields slower growing bones and greater bone density. Um, it's effectively higher caliber viscera and everything. Wow. So it's amazing. You should, you got some spare time someday, just get a conventional chicken bone and chicken bone from a Belcampo or a, um, you know, any kind of quality regenerative farm. And you can snap the bones for the conventional one in your finger. Wow. Just like a toothpick. And our bones, you can't because it took four times as long to grow to the same. It's like a tree that grows really quick compared to one that grows slow. Of course, it's going to be more solid, right? Yeah. So then if you've got that higher quality viscera, 
things like broth where you're actually melting all of that good quality out of every aspect of the animal. So kind of the, the flip side of the equation, because I kind of scratch my head where I'm like, how do I make this more accessible? And unfortunately, the paradigm in the U.S. around subsidies and the way the world works, I don't know how to. It's not something like with massive scale that this gets way cheaper. It gets a little cheaper, mm-hmm. but let's say it goes from 24 to 19, right? It doesn't go from 24 to 6 yeah. scale. It doesn't go from 24 to 6 unless I put those animals indoors. So that's a real problem. You know, and that's kind of like the the challenge in my world now is like, how do I then take that product and make it appealing to a consumer and teach them ways where they can use that and teach them the benefit? Because there's days that I wake up and I'm like, well, maybe I just shouldn't do chicken, you know, because it's so much more expensive and it's so hard to get people to see the value in it. Hmm. Um, so that that's something I, you know, but from a consumer perspective, it's like make a broth out of the bones. Assume that when you spend more on it, every single piece of it is going to have tons more flavor. The other thing that you're going to notice is that you do have satiety faster, right? Because there's more flavor. And that kind of like that, it doesn't, it's not hyper palatability flavor. It's like complex and challenging flavor. But that flavor is going to be something that shows up in everything you make out of it, right? So that broth is going to have more complexity and flavor. It's going to last longer. It's going to be more filling. So there's there's like these kind of like soft externalities of hmm. these products that are hard to quantify and sell. But they're really important and they're costly to make. Super important. So it's sort of like a missed opportunity if you're buying a high-end bird like a belcampo bird and not making bone broth because the bones are so much more robust in terms of their their mineral content mm-hmm. um yeah and you mentioned earlier that you make bones you make bone broth after roasting the bones you don't mm-hmm. just throw raw bones into the you into can the do soup. both so when um bones are amazing in the fetus um the of any animal including humans bones are first a matrix of collagen so as the fetus grows in a cow or an embryonic animal, it's going to be a matrix of collagen. And then that collagen through diet calcifies, right? So the animals are eating grass or whatever that's got calcium in it. And then those that collagen, collagenous matrix actually calcifies. That's how bones are made wow. in a body. So when, you, when you're boiling it, you're effectively undoing the making of it. You know, you're <laughs> extracting that collagen out of that calcium matrix and you're also pulling out some calcium as well. But then around all the bones is just... The, the collagen, so things like fascia, right? Hmm. You hear about fascia when you get a massage, right? If fascia is that those are really, that's what we call in the butchering side of things, it's silver skin or muscular sheaths. And so the fascia are basically sheaths made out of a tough, tough n- network of collagen that actually really um, allow the, the muscles to move smoothly against each other. When you boil the bones down, you're taking that, that collagen is going to remain hard and tough if you cook it fast. So if you've ever had the experience where you cook a steak and it's got like kind of like some white chunks on the outside, they don't dissolve. Yeah. And then you eat it and you're like, got, got, Yeah, that. it's like the most chewy thing ever. That's silver skin. So that's basically the part of the musculature that's designed to allow the muscles to slide against each other inside the body. So you can't do anything hot with that. You actually have to do a long, slow, moist cook. And that will dissolve the collagen out of there. Now, there's some other really good things you can do, though, with those cuts. And, you know, we talk a lot about, like, collagen and bone broth, and then people take collagen in powders. But, you know, the best way to get collagen is just to make stew. Hmm. You know, um, we were eating carnitas downstairs. And so carnitas good. are so rich in, in collagen. And you've had that experience, too. You know, you eat stew or something, and it's, like, not fatty, but you feel really full. 
It's because it's so high protein with a liquefied collagen. Hmm. And you also kind of get that, it's like that mouthfeel, you know, sticky. sticky and that's, and it's not greasy. It's sticky. That's collagen. So you can really, you can even learn to feel it like on your lips, like that kind of like this touch of collagen. And that's like this kind of tacky, nice, and that's really filling, really nutritious. So things you can do to, to get that out quickly, you could take a whole lamb shoulder, sear it, cover it in water, put it in the oven for three hours, and you're going to get really soft meat and you're going to get tons of collagen. So it's something to experiment with as you're on your like optimal health path. You know, the more food nutrients you can get in their natural availability, you have greater bioavailability. So the challenge for those of us who are interested in meat-based nutrition is I think to cook more to get that or find products that have that. And the steaks that we celebrate on a cow, actually kind of like one of the more like nutritionally impoverished parts of the cow. Nutritionally impoverished. That's because they're what? They're essentially just pure protein. Mm -hmm. Which isn't bad, right? But they don't have your, you know, you taught me about like the the rate limiting pathway, right? For for the metabolization, metabolism like of the- Glycine, methionine. Yeah. So you yeah. can't fully metabolize just pure striated muscle. You need to mix it in with other types of protein to help metabolize it and break it down. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you do fully metabolize the protein in meat, but you also, there's this thinking and it's it largely comes from, you know, animal studies, rat studies in particular, that show that uh, rats on a, a methionine-enriched diet, which methionine is very abundant in muscle meat, not as much so in collagenous tissue, that there's a shortening of lifespan, but that, that that effect is actually abolished when they're given supplemental glycine as well, which to me is like a major... Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a sign that maybe nose to tail animal consumption is something that nature had intended for us. Well, we used to eat more braised meat than grilled meat, and I think that braised meat has just a huge health functionality, and it also takes more value of the animal, right? So, nose to tail, it's actually about optimally using the whole animal mm -hmm. because most of the animal is what holds it together, and then the actual muscles that pull it are relatively like in important, and they're they're less volume. Yeah. So, if you're thinking about ways to eat for health, I mean, liver and stuff is part of it. You know, eating your organ meats is definitely if that's your jam, great. But just getting into the habit of making a weekly braise can be transformative from a health perspective because you're going to get so much more collagen that you'll really notice it in your skin and hair and nails and gut. So I don't think we we tend to want to like, I feel like there's a supplement culture in the US, which is great and it works, in, especially because we eat poor quality food, we need supplements now. But sometimes we take, you know, what's good from things and just immediately say, let's put that in a bottle. Yeah. And sometimes I say like, let's just take a step back, right? And say, great, if, I, if I'm on the road and I'm taking my collagen supplement, that makes sense, right? But when I'm at home and I have the time and bandwidth, I should be getting some beef shoulder, a lamb shoulder. So everything that's a shoulder in the animal, because we have so much mobility in the shoulder, there's tons of connective tissue here. Any muscle that needs to move in a lot of different ways and has a complex function in the animal is going to have a ton more connective tissue. Um, so the, and, and just like that's large load bearing shoulders, like we have on lamb and beef mm. and pork. That's why things like, you know, Boston butt or pork shoulder are so famous for braising, right? Cause there are ways to liquefy all of this connective tissue. And then, then the cut, the, the, the muscles, like the ones along the loin, those actually are the precious cuts, right? The ribeye and the New York, and they surround the spinal cord of the animal. So in a cow, you got the legs and the spinal cord right down the middle. It's just a big 
slice of meat because it's not really active. You know, where all the action is, is those shoulders and those thighs. Hmm. That's just holding the, 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 the spinal cord in place. And then there's lots of muscles that surround the gut. Okay. So that muscle is very lean and, or sorry, it's not, it's very tender and mild because it doesn't get much motion. Hmm. And then functionally, it doesn't have a lot of moving parts. So what you're eating when you have the ribeye is kind of like this unexercised or least exercised part <laughs> of the animal. It's still in a free range animal going to be pretty oxygenated, have that nice deep red color, have a lot of richness and flavor. It's not going to be bland ever. But I'm just saying you're choosing a cut that's like, because often in the in the U.S. now we've come to kind of conflate two things, right? And we've cut, this is because we receive a lot of marketing. We conflate industrial convenience with optimal delicious, hmm. right? So we've been taught for years that, you know, white and very uh, lean pork is the best pork. Now that's just kind of an industrially convenient food, yeah. right? For the, for the pork industry to produce. That's nothing to do with quality. That's nothing to do with flavor. You know, in, in the same thing goes with like a ribeye versus like a flat iron, okay? It's just really convenient to market the ribeyes because there's 10 or so of them on each side of the beef, you know, there's 15 or 20 of those kind of prime steaks in every animal. And there's only two flat irons. That's a pain to mm. get and to mm. market, right? So these things that we we need to always look at this like critically saying, okay, take a step back from the price point of these different cuts. And then we're talking at the start of the conversation about looking at your pantry, looking at your fridge and being like, what am I kind of vibing on right now? Right. <laughs> but the same thing true, like for me, I enjoy eating a ribeye, no problem. But if I actually look at like how I feel, if I make like a, I'm feeling hungry talking about this, like like <laughs> a, like a braised like beef shoulder, and I braise it with like you know blackened shiitake mushrooms, and then I pull it out the next day and I toss some like carrots in there and some shallots, that's like good eating. That like makes me feel amazing. That makes a ribeye look like a snack, <laughs> you know. Like that's actually a deep, and I think it's because it's like it's kind of checking more boxes for my health. Hmm. So that's where I think if you kind of pay attention to your actual. Not just your emotionality, but your visceral response to foods. You can kind of coach yourself to take on more and to cook, you know, to try more things. And you might actually find that like that nine ninety nine cut of beef clawed, right, is is doing more for you than your thirty nine ninety nine, you know, ribeye. Isn't Anya brilliant, you guys? She's definitely one of my favorite humans. This episode is brought to you by the Epic Team over at Paleo Valley. That's right, another week, another episode where I share my love for Paleo Valley meat sticks. I've been a longstanding member of Team Teriyaki, but I have to confess that I've developed feelings for a new flavor, y'all. The jalapeno. Talk about a fun way to spice up your snack life. A healthy snack should be loaded with flavor and nutrients, and that's why I'm so passionate about Paleo Valley. They truly make some of the best meat sticks around. They're 100% grass-fed beef sticks are the only beef sticks in the USA made from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef and organic spices that are naturally fermented and oh so tasty. I highly suggest heading over to paleovalley.com slash max and you'll get 15% off. That's paleovalley.com slash max to save 15% off of my favorite meat sticks and on-the-go snack. Oh, and my fellow Team Teriyaki stands, don't worry, I'll be back. Just taking a jalapeno break. While we're on the subject of healthy, tasty, and nutritious snacks, I should mention the final sponsor for today's episode, Simple Mills. That's right, Simple Mills is back and ready to crunch up your snack life. One of my favorite snacks is a Genius Life approved charcuterie board. Now, all you fancy ladies and gents, this little snack board isn't all that extravagant, but it is 1000% perfectly splendid. Get yourself a little meat stick or jerky action, an avocado, and the fine ground sea salt almond flour crackers from Simple Mills, and you 
you are locked and loaded for a top-notch snack board. Bonus points if you add a little bit of dark chocolate at the end. The Simple Mills almond flour crackers are really what hold this snack board together. All of Simple Mills products have a short, fully recognizable ingredient list composed of whole foods with nothing artificial ever. You might recognize the Simple Mills name from trips to your grocery store, but I highly recommend heading over to their website, simplemills.com. Their website is beyond user-friendly and allows you to quickly purchase all of your crunchy snack needs. Our friends at Simple Mills have given us an exclusive discount code for 20% off of your purchase. All you got to do is go to simplemills.com and use code GENIUS20 to get that 20% off. Save some cheddar, get some crunchy snacks. Love it. Now back to my chat with the wonderful Anya Fernald. Isn't that so interesting that more expensive cuts could actually be better for you and more, or, or sorry, that cheaper cuts could be better for you and uh, and more nourishing than the more expensive, more more prized cuts of meat. Talking about, talking about accessibility, right? And like, and, and food equity. I think that's an important, that's an important point that you bring up. Well, we, we, we've really um, loved the grill in the U.S. We love throwing stuff on the grill. And there, there's kind of a piece of that too, where I'd say, you know, you can also take a book from like all of Asia and like take a page from their book where a lot of these cuts too, you, you can brace them, but you can also just like, you can pop them in your freezer, cut them really thin against the grain and throw them on a hot pan. I mean, there's like a style of cooking that's kind of like in a lot of Asian countries, you see that fundamentally there's not really cuts of beef. They kind of just cut all the beef the same way hmm. and then they'll prepare it in a certain way. So it's like either boiled or it's cut really thin and cooked hot and fast. So there's kind of ways to work around it. But this idea that there's certain cuts that are precious and less precious, it's like that's just a that's really the economics of the animal. Um, and you need to educate yourself and empower yourself to try the different things. You may find that you really like tongue and just incredibly inexpensive and super nutritious, right? Yeah. Now there's actually there's definitely certain, you know, certain cuts that are gonna be, you know, chewier and more complex and harder to get your head around. Like there's that it's not like this is an absolute there's a reason why everybody's are famous and delicious, you know. <laughs> But I think that what we're seeing right now is a kind of a generational shift. Like I'm seeing in people doing carnivore and trying like rendering their own suet. Um, they're doing, you know, they're trying to make liver. That's like the question I get the most on Instagram now. It's like, I just got this liver. I really want to eat it. And that's amazing. Like I, if I had thought two years ago, people would be DMing me being like, I want to eat more liver. That's, I would have been, that's never, ever going to happen. So that's, these are some shifts that are happening. I think people are kind of discovering this, but liver is like, you know, five ninety nine pounds. It's like incredibly inexpensive. It's so cheap. I love it. And uh, it's such a, it, I have such a big problem cooking it because neither of my brothers will go near it. So I have to buy it. And generally when I buy it, I know that I'm going to be the only person eating it, but I'm such a big fan. How do you cook it? I will generally sear it in very hot ghee. I find that ghee is the most, and you know, I I welcome your thoughts on this, but I find that it's like the most complimentary, it's got Mm -hmm. the most complimentary flavor profile Mm -hmm. uh, to go with the liver. And then I typically will just throw salt on it, maybe some, maybe like a squeeze of lime. Yeah. Um, my friend Mary Shenuda, who is a friend of yours as well, yes. I believe, she has an incredible recipe that I fell in love with. It's actually it involves chicken liver, uh, but I loved it so much that I put it in my first book, Genius Foods. Okay, um, and that also that was where she in, does it with peppers. She does it with peppers, but yeah. she also uses ghee, and that's where I first kind of like made that ghee liver connection. Yeah, and I also find a big part of cooking liver, and you know, you're the expert here, but um, but I find it to be really important not to overcook it. Absolutely, like you want it more or less rare. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd say medium rare. Hmm. Um, and and I think if you're squeamish about the pink in the liver, like don't do a thick slice of it. I would cut it to a quarter inch thick. I love ghee. I think for a more economic um, 
cooking fat that has the same taste properties, suet is great. What is suet? Suet is just rendered beef fat. Hmm. And so what, what's the difference between that and tallow? Same thing. So oh. it's a more precious suits is actually the visceral fat. Interesting. So it's like the fat that surrounds the organs and protects them from the bones inside of the body. So every, these organs are super tender. You know, the, the membrane is very, very tender. They're very, they don't have any striated muscle structure. So they're like, think about it. Like people, you know, in boxing, when people get punched in the kidney, it's like, it's the most painful thing. So the viscera are very, very tender. And the way that the body protects them is this visceral fat. Hmm. So there are little pillows of fat that surround the organs in the animal and protect it from any like abdominal injuries and from its own bones. So that fat, like there's different characters of fat within the animal. It's really beautiful. You really see it in in pigs as a consumer because bacon cooks very differently than like the fat on a pork shoulder, right? Because mm-hmm. they have different kind of functionality. The bacon the back fat on a on a pig is excellent for salami, but makes terrible bacon. It's too crisp for the bacon. So if you you actually taste those, you'll taste them differently. It'd be hard to describe it, but some of them are like more poppy and they've got a finer texture. Other ones are a little bit. And it basically has to do with the presence of collagenous tissue and fascia in the muscle, hmm. right? That's like the bacon has a little bit more of it, so it's got more chew. So in the in the beef, that suet actually has a very very tender um, fascial structure. And it renders really well. So it's the most precious of the beef fat. And the other fats are, well, marrow is the most precious fat. And then after that, suet. And then below that is tallow. And tallow is kind of everything else. Hmm. The other really neat thing about the suet is that it's not attached to any musculature. So it has very little like taint of meat flavor. So if you are if you were just to take the a big slab of fat off of a rack of New York's, let's say, of extra muscular fat and just render that out, It'd be really beefy. But suet's just been this kind of little bag of fat within the gut. So it doesn't have any kind of muscle fiber in it. So it has no the aging beef flavor. Hmm. But I've been cooking with it a ton. I was I did carnivore diet a couple times on and off this year. And in the course of that, rendered a bunch of it just to try it out and love it. And it's also just, you know, a, a, I love ghee, but a big jar of good ghee is like 30 bucks. It's expensive, yeah. It's expensive. And for and I use a lot of fat in my cooking. Hmm. So I would be tearing through like 30 bucks of ghee a week or something. And so I um I was suet, you know, I I can it's it's you know, basically a third or quarter of the price um for Belcampo suet. So it's a, it's just much more economical and it's got the same characteristics, a 450 degree smoke point. Wow. And then it's a beautiful flavor. And eggs fried in suet are are they? Yeah. The really hardcore carnivores just like slice up the suet and kind of snack on it, which is not my jam. I've seen Paul Saladino do that. He just brought like a bag of suet like over with him. Yeah. That's, and uh, was just popping it into his mouth. Yeah. That's that, that's not something I've been able to, although I <laughs> you couldn't ask for a more enthusiastic woman about meat in general. I, I'm not going there with the suet chunks. So wait, where can, because I don't think I've ever seen it in the supermarket. Where can listeners like pick up suet? We sell it on our site and okay. then you can get it from a quality butcher. Got it. Um, and I actually rendered a jar for you. Oh, amazing. I'll drop it by. Yeah. But it's, it, and it's very easy to render. You just throw it in a pan hmm. and cook it for like three or four hours and you pour it off. We sell it whole because honestly, there's not enough of a market for it yet for us to render it out. But there's companies like Fatco is a company that sells rendered suet in grocery stores. It's kind of catching on because now that animal fat's like out of the the bad the bad bin, yeah. right? Then people are looking at it. And for me, it's just you know if you're tr- if you're looking for even if you're buying good quality avocado oil, it's still going to be more expensive than suet. 
Hmm. So for me, suet and and lard. Hey, I, I like lard enough. I don't love um, the 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 porky flavor though on everything. So suet's got that nice like that bovine mildness, right? So it's more applicable to more things, and then it keep, it'll keep you in your fridge for like six months. You know, it's interesting from an environmental standpoint. It's probably so much more sustainable to use these beef fats. Like most people are not buying beef fats. There's probably so much that's going into the into the. Into oh yeah, landfills. we used to pay people. We we sell it now. Not all of it though. We the what we some of the lower quality stuff we pay people to pick up and it turns into biofuel. Wow! But it's like I mean, there's just this there's a sort of radical shift away from animal fat, and it's not just like all of a sudden everybody woke up and did it. It was a it was I remember um, you know my uh, my mom telling me that when she was a kid that she remembers the point at which margarine became cooler than butter. Oh God. I and think it, I remember that. It was like a thing where there was, and she was like, yeah, they used to not be able to sell. It's kind of like with um, almond milk, not being able to be called milk. Now there was a similar type of industry backlash. And so they would sell it in a white block and then it, it came with a dye drop and you'd massage this like in the 1950s when my mom was a kid or something. Mm. something. Mm. So they would, you'd have to stir the color in. And then it was like the miracle of technology that margarine was better. So it's like, there's been like billions of dollars convincing us to not cook the meat of the animals we love to eat in the fat of those same animals we love to eat. It's like, no, no, don't do that. Buy this hyper-processed vegetable, genetically <laughs> modified, spray your grill with it. Like it's crazy. From a flavor perspective, from a health perspective, they perform well at the same heat. They taste great together. It's a total no-brainer. But you can make a version of it yourself. And this is something I always recommend when you're cooking is a nice ribeye if it has a fat cap on it and it doesn't always like sometimes it'll be cut off or have aged too much but if you have some fat on it even if you have like a nice little like walnut sized piece of fat kind of notched into it where the two muscles of the ribeye meet hmm. cut that out get your pan hot rub that piece of fat across the pan and that will just quickly render fat out well wow. get that nice and smoking hot throw your ribeye into that fat so you can cook animals in their own fat. You can cook your meats in their own fat very easily. You can mm. do the same thing with a pork chop. You should never be like spraying a grill with avocado oil or with Pam. The only case where you'd ever be able to do that would be for a boneless, skinless chicken breast. Right. You know, because it's the only cut of meat that doesn't have enough fat on it. So when you're looking at a piece of meat and figuring out how to cut it, how to cook it, like if I'm cooking, let's say a lamb shoulder um, and there's one side that's bone, there's one side that's fat. I'm going to heat up my my pot, my my Dutch oven, and put it fat side down. Fat side down first. Render that out, and I'll hear it. It'll be poppy. It'll smell fatty and good. And then once it's rendered out, I'll turn it over. And then I've got my own fat. So there's no need to, like, put the butter in, burn the butter. You know, you've been there. Like, yeah. you burn the butter. Then, yeah. Oh, man, I got to, like, wash the pan out and put new butter in. But watch it like a hawk. Like, no, its own fat will perform really well at the appropriate temperature. I love that. That was something that you, the first time you told me that, I was very surprised that when cooking burgers, for example, or steaks, you don't add any additional fat to the pan. No. And, it, and it doesn't stick somehow. If you're if you're not, you have to go hot. You have to go hot. Because you have to render the fat out. You have to make it hot enough that the fat will melt. Because okay. keep in mind that the, you know, the beef, will, the, the melting temperature needs to be there. So you can't put it in a cold pan because if you do that, you basically, the proteins will bond to the pan before mm. the fat has time to render out. So it's kind of like a race of the two things. You want to get the fat rendered out before the protein has time to, to glom onto the pan and attach it so those proteins like flatten out and you cook onto the pan. Wow. So if you go hot, they'll throw it in there. Now, if you're working with like a 95% lean, it's not going to work. 
Yeah. You know, you, you need to, it needs to have like at least 10%. Throw some oil in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so cast iron pan on the on the skillet, you're turning the flame basically up to high. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, the if the dial goes from one to 10, you're putting it at 10. What I like to do is to put my hand an inch above the skillet. If it's like a c- uncomfortable, that's good. Hmm. It, it can't you can't be like it's comfortable to hang out there. That's hot enough. Throw then then put the part of the meat down. That is the most fatty. Mm-hmm. Let that you'll see it render out. You actually see fat seeping out from around it. And then put the face of the meat that's leaner into that same fat. That's amazing. And with with uh, when you're making a burger, similar concept. There, I just will put my burger. I'm always using an 80-20 blend. Mm-hmm. And I'll just throw the burger in with that ground meat in it, like the ground fat in it. It will render out immediately yeah. and it will seize up off the pan. Talk to me about salt, salting meat. So salting is complicated because when you salt, you're going to draw a little bit of moisture onto the surface of the meat. Mm-hmm. So to me, salting the meat a minute or two before, it doesn't really make a difference in the in the taste quality as when you're salting it partially through the cooking. And you also are pulling a little bit of water onto the surface of the meat that's going to potentially make the surface of the meat gray before it browns. Hmm. Have you had that happen where you cook meat and it's like grayish first? It's almost like it's been boiled. If I leave it out for too long okay but also if you just sear it in a pan it won't get dark brown it'll just get more like brownish yes that happens when meat's wet because what will happen is that what hits the pan is wet and water and that'll boil and then you're kind of boiling the surface of the meat got it so it's like yeah because i've noticed when salting steaks i throw it in the pan it doesn't get dark it gets kind of like because you have this little layer of water that water boils and so those cells on the surface of the meat you're boiling them wow so they're going to be grayish not brownish you want to fry those cells right you want them to get brown and crispy Mm -hmm. so i prefer i actually usually get my fat rendered put the steak down and then when i flip it over that side that's been cooked i'll salt that Got it. Because if I'm not salting like, I mean, if I'm doing a dry brine or a wet brine or something where the, it's about the salt penetrating the flesh, yeah, of course I'll salt it beforehand. But that'll be like six hours beforehand. Got it. Maybe three. So if you're talking about any time within the hour before you're going to cook it, if it feels good to salt it beforehand, you know, it's like fun sprinkling it. Okay, fine. And obviously if you're doing it in the oven, you should do it first. But if you're doing it stovetop and you're watching it, I would recommend just salting it as you flip it. Got it. My one kind of caveat to that would be meat that's very dry, which would be like if you have like a 45-day age dry age steak or something, you actually might want to salt it beforehand because in that case, the meat will be so dry, it'll be difficult for the salt to absorb. Hmm. I also think it's like the idea of a finishing salt is interesting. You know, that's a, a salt that you're adding more for texture than for flavor. So that might be like, you'd know, like a Malden salt or a Jacobson's flake salt or a Redmond salt. It's like kind of got a cool textural thing. I, I'm obsessed with flake salt. Okay. FYI. How do you use it? I use it as a finishing salt. I keep a, I have a little sauce plate mm-hmm. or sauce bowl, whatever they're called, uh, on my dining room table at all times with flake salt. In yeah. it. And I throw it on pretty much everything. It's I throw so it good. on steak. I throw it on eggs. I throw it on vegetables. I also... Um, 
it always uh, I always get looks of bewilderment from the from the waiters. But whenever I'm in a restaurant, I know that they that if it's a if it's a higher end restaurant, they have some flake salt in the kitchen. Yeah. So I'll literally ask for that. You know, I like you're that guy. I push. I'm that guy. But I push the table salt, you know, to the side yeah. and, and I call over a, a waiter or a busboy. And I'm like, can I please get, you know, this like thick flaky salt that sometimes they like finish meat with. Like just ask, ask the chef yeah, about it. He'll know. Yeah. And they bring it out for me. And it's amazing. Yeah. It's such a it's such a game. Changer. I also think for for people listening to this, like uh, having flake salt in your kitchen adds like a restaurant quality level of sophistication that is extremely inexpensive, but adds like a lot. Like mm-hmm. w- like what it adds is not commensurate with how much it costs. Well, the thing to know about that, people get flake salt and they're like, "But I tore through it and it was so expensive." And the the key thing is that when flake salt is in water. It's just the same as regular salt. Yeah. So there's really no reason to use it unless you have an application where it can stay totally dry. Yeah. So you have to use it once all your food is fully finished cooking. So you're not going to whisk it into your salad dressing. You're not going to add it to the – you're not going to salt your steak with it before you cook it because then it's going to pull the moisture out of the steak and it'll immediately just turn into a nice little saline saline layer Yeah. on the exterior of the meat. So I think you you just have to be careful about – it's expensive – but you use it in a way that's conscious of it because when it melts, it's basically just salt, right? There's really no difference. Yeah, it's so worth it. I would say that and a good um, extra virgin olive oil. Like those are, the, those are the two places where I'm like, spend what you can afford. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but I love what you, were, what you were saying about the steaks and not wanting to boil it. I've heard – so I've the way that I operate with steaks, correct me if I'm wrong. So I so, – so, You've definitely challenged the way that I think about salting meat before I throw it on the pan. But I've, I've heard that you can throw it on immediately before you put it in the pan, before it has time yeah. to accumulate mm-hmm. that water. Absolutely, sure. Or like 45 minutes before. Mm-hmm. If it's like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's got to be either like 45 minutes to an hour before or longer mm-hmm. or immediately yes, before you throw it on the pan. Absolutely. And then while we're talking about fat, about fat and rendering fat, remember that when you're cooking organs – they do have a lot of fat in them, but the way that the cell structure is, that fat will not render out. Amazing. So if you're liver? using liver, has tons of fat in it. Wow! But if you throw liver into a dry pan, it's not going to render out because it's a very, very fine structure. Okay. Hmm. So when you're using, that's one place where you. That's I think suet is fantastic, and that ghee is also great. I use probably avocado oil in a pinch for that. But for those, you're going to want to go very hot and fast because otherwise they'll end up kind of medium throughout, which is not very good. And you want a nice crust because with the organ meats, the contrast is super important there. You could also, if you were making marrow, you can save the marrow bone fat and use that. You know, if you rent, if you put marrow bones on a pan and cook them for yourself, put your flaky salt, some lemon zest, some thyme on that. So delicious. And then you'll, but you can save what's in the bottom of the pan because a bunch of fat will end up there. Put that in a jar, just like you might save bacon fat and then cook cook um, your liver and things in that. But with your organ meats, there's going to be no time to render it out because of the way the fat structure is. So that's one where you really need to go abundant on adding fat to the pan first. Fascinating. When it comes to throwing back to the steaks, because I I love myself a good steak, um, they've got to be, they definitely have to be dry before you throw them in the pan, right? No water. No water. And I, I wouldn't freak out about like drying them off. You know, like with um, paper towels, like you wouldn't recommend doing that if they were very, very moist, maybe. But I, I'm just going to more like let it dry on a cutting board for a minute or two. It's not about like it doesn't take a lot of water to make it grayish, but it also it should dry off if it's if it's for whatever reason has like a what's called a purge, you know, so a lot of water in the bag. Yeah, you could dry it off with a towel. It'll mm. definitely improve the crispness of it. 
Because, you know, you, you think about it, you couldn't like fry, it's difficult to fry like a wet vegetable too, right? It doesn't adhere. The fat doesn't crisp in the same way. So getting rid of the moisture is going to improve the crispness and the Maillard reaction that you get from your fat. I love that. So useful. You also, uh, I believe you allow your your steaks in a, in a best case scenario to get to room temperature before throwing it on the grill, correct? Especially if they're thick. Hmm. So if I'm talking about a steak that's under an inch and a half, I'm not going to be worried about it. Because when I put it in the pan, just the heat contact from the pan itself will bring the middle to temp in minutes. But if I'm going north of an inch and a half, especially north of two inches, there's going to be a major gradient issue. Hmm. So you've had the experience, I'm sure, of like a black and blue steak where it's cold in the middle. You remember uh, that experience? I haven't, but I can picture that. It doesn't sound very pleasant. So that's a really common thing. Take the take the two-inch steak out. There's like, you know, I always think of it as like sort of like super bro cooking where you're like, oh my God, this huge steak. And then it's like <laughs> you put it there and then it's it's like burnt on the outside and then raw on the inside. So in those bigger chops, the same with roasts, it's very important to do that. And if you can't do that, you actually need to go low and slow first. So the hack, if you if you have like that two-inch you could buy it from Bell Campo, two-inch thick tomahawk steak, bone in. But you didn't plan it out and you're running home. you like, got to get out of the fridge. I would at that point go in my oven with it at 200 degrees and it will turn grayish. And you might be a little freaked out, right? I might do it 20, 30 minutes at 200 degrees in the oven and then take it out and hit it hard and sear it. Hmm. Um, and that's called a reverse sear. So that's like basically you you when you're cooking stovetop you're you're doing a classic sear sequence. So you're searing on the outside and then the residual heat from that sear is cooking the inside to temp. A reverse sear you disaggregate that sequence, right? And so you actually take the inside cooking part, do it first at low temp. You do the same thing when you sous vide. Hmm. Okay? And then afterwards you hit the sear and you focus on the crust. It's a nice process. I feel like it's really good if your personality, if you like really a lot of like control and to really understand the process. And if you are nervous about having spent a lot of money on meat, right? You know what I mean? Like that, it's it's useful for in that case too. Because there you're going to be really sure that you can have it dialed. So if you want your meat to nice, like let's say medium rare, you can put it in your oven at 180 or 200, take it to an internal temp of 125. While you're doing that, you hit that, you know, cast iron stovetop, get it hot as you can. Super hot. And then sear it on three sides, start with the fat cap, get your fat, and then do the two sides. You'll have a perfect steak. Wow. Okay. It's a little less sensual and fun, you know, because you're not like touching it and it's smelling good and cooking it slowly. You know, it's a little less delicious from my perspective. Mm. But I think if you're like, oh my God, I spent $80 on the steak. I don't want to mess it up. It's a great way to do it. Now, I'm not a fan of sous vide, right? Sous vide is something that I think from a toxicity perspective is really questionable because, you you know, that's when you're doing that same process of slowly cooking the interior, but you're doing it in a plastic bag in water. Right. And there you have a lot of potential for contamination. Those bags, some of them don't have BPAs, but they've got something else that you would know more about than me. But well, super God question. knows what they put in those, but you, don't, you just don't know. Yeah. And it's, have, ne it's never informed consent, right? You don't know what's in those bags. It might not be BPA. It could be BPS. It could be BPF. And plastics are a liquid, right? And foods liquid. Like there's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, everything, the exterior foods, all porous membrane, unless you're eating like a coconut, it's going to get right in there pretty fast, right? And, all, and also plastic is made using oil. So oil can actually dissolve some plastics, not all, really? but that's why you don't want to buy oil or fatty foods if they've been sitting in plastic, especially if they've been sitting in plastic and heat. And you don't know wow. how food has been stored prior to it reaching your supermarket. Yeah. So I, I've, I've been on um, Food Network shows for years as a judge. And when I do that, 
and I that a lot of that food is cooked sous vide, hmm. and I have such a strong inflammatory response to that food that I eat. It all tastes great. You know, it's a really good way to get super dialed precision. But I've avoided using that technique in any of the Belcampo restaurants just because I feel like it's a it's kind of too much. Sort of like a microwave where you're. Like, I know it's convenient, but I feel like there's a cost to this convenience, you know? So, but the, but you can, and you can also do it like on a Traeger or a grill. You can do that reverse sear where you just bring it to temp low and slow. And it's, it's the same concept as a sous vide. Low and slow to cook the interior and then focus on just the searing at the end. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, adding sp- other spices to steaks prior to grilling, like black pepper, garlic powder, things like that? So, you know, I... I have a lot of thoughts about sauces, first off. I think it's kind of like doing a cleanse. I think on your health journey, if you decided that cooking was part of like what you want your adult life to encompass, I would recommend starting with simplicity. And and I think that a lot of things get masked by a rub or a marinade. And I think fundamentally, really good clean meat doesn't need it. Hmm. You should know, you know, Sauces are like an inflammatory cocktail. You know, it's c- typically canola oil, sugar, and soy. Yeah. And you basically mean... every, like 99% of marinades are basically canola yeah. or safflower oil, sugar of some sort, and, and soy. Just crap. It's And so you're taking kind of nature's perfect food of meat and then putting like this inflammatory cocktail on them and like, ah, oh, meat doesn't agree with me. <laughs> you know, it's like, well... Yes. I question that premise, you know, so I think that taking the sauces out of the equation, you know, I had this experience, I get sent so many products and this person will go unnamed, but a great, you know, like this, I got this really nice rubs and I noticed my, um, my eight year old daughter, like eating it with a spoon and I'm like, Oh God, that's weird. And I look and it's like the number one ingredient sugar. It's like, mm. of course she's eating it with a spoon, especially in our like sugar impoverished household. She's like, this is great. I yeah. this like super, and it was yummy. And it was like, it was like brown sugar and cinnamon and, you know, it's fine. It's probably the most hyper, t- hyper palatable thing she's ever had in her life. So, but keep in mind, like read the ingredients when you do, if you're not making it yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, a little sugar on meat as an enhancement, a little, you know, I use coconut or agave in, in salad dressings occasionally. It's great. Yeah. Like, but you just have to dial, you have to coach your palate. You know, I think barbecue for me, I mean, it's delicious, but I think it's one of the more inflammatory combinations that we have kind of widely available. And there's so much sugar in it. Like that's why you you get that kind of like gut bomb feeling from barbecue. It's not pork. It's not the pork. It's not the fat. People exactly. are like, it's so much fat. It's like, no, it's the combination of tons of protein and tons of sugar in the same boat is really hard on your on your body. Tons of protein, tons of fat, and tons of sugar. Yeah. That's... I mean, I can't tell you how many times um, people like uh, people people have messaged me on Instagram telling me that like meat, you know, like they get an upset stomach from eating meat, which I think is so generally unlikely. But you can't really offer advice without knowing exactly how they're eating it. But generally, I would say most of the time, it's people are eating. That's how people are eating meat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, what's the, the question? Would be like, what's the opportunity that I can offer you for a different way, right? So if you if if you're accustomed to putting like your jarred teriyaki sauce on your chicken, what's the other way? So some things I would recommend doing are, you mentioned really good olive oil, um, really good lemon juice or fresh lemon juice, lemon zest, fresh herbs, parsley, thyme are fantastic. Um, I would recommend starting with that as your palate. So if you take like even a boneless, skinless chicken breast or just a simple, whatever, lean piece of, of meat, 
and try that with like a more basic, like a, com a sauce that you're making out of different ingredients that you understand. If you want it sweeter, you know, a great combination is to use some coconut sugar, olive oil, lemon, that's fine. You could also do a chimichurri where you take just basic, you know, like two cups of herbs and a half a cup of olive oil and a quarter cup of lemon, right? That's a nice combination. That's also really, really unlike the kind of American sauce cocktail of the soy, canola, and sugar. Yeah. Parsley, lemon, and olive oil, those are all like prebiotics. They're great for your digestion. Parsley is a natural antimicrobial. It's a natural gut soother. So many of the traditional combinations of things we ate with meat were all about helping us assist in digesting and, and taking advantage of this incredibly healthy food. So you look at like charcuterie, right? Traditional preserved pork, a little heavier on your system. It's got like some natural antimicrobials in it, things that stop the decay of meat also are going to be harder to digest, right? Because we're meat and mm. they're harder for us to digest. Yeah. So you always ate those with pickles and mustard and vinegar, right? Things that are all, and kraut, like kraut, heavy, heavy probiotic load. So we tended, if you look at nutritionally kind of, I think, uh, ancestral kind of diet approaches, you were taking this superfood and you're combining it with things that made it easier to extract optimal nutrition. And that's where, if you look at what you're combining with your meat, that's the, the ideal. So for me, it's always in my fridge. It's fresh flat leaf parsley. It's really good olive oil and really good lemon juice and then whatever salt. Now, beyond that, um, in terms of what you're going to put on your steak, we're talking about that. I, I would never recommend any like dry uh, green herbs. Like some people crust it with rosemary. If you're grilling a steak, most of that's going to just catch on fire. Hmm. Okay. If you're doing a wet rub, by all means, your dry green herbs are fine. If you're doing a dry rub, I'm going to always want to stick to um, to not herbs but spices because those actually will melt into the surface of the meat and be moistened enough by the water on that's coming out and the fat that they won't catch on fire. Hmm. So there's a – but in general, if you're – if it's like I only like my steak with this marinade or this thing, I encourage you to use as a provocation to be like, and do I have the right steak? You know, it's like the same thing. It's like I can only like um, go go out with my boyfriend if I'm drunk. It's like, do you have the right guy? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you're having to do that much to make it work, is that really like? You just got really a lot of people work? listening, thinking about <laughs> <laughs> questioning but, their relationships. But I, I want to. I also think a really good thing to learn is just like marinate your meat after you've cooked it. Okay, so we have this thing about marinating the meat beforehand because we associate it with moisture. You know what? the moisture is going to come from quality meat. Yeah. It's really difficult unless you're using an injector, which is what they do like in barbecue competitions, use a big old syringe or tumbler or something to actually get moisture into the meat. If you want your meat to be moist, use good quality meat. And if you want a delicious marinade, marinate your meat after. Okay, so don't soak your chicken and your teriyaki sauce beforehand. Cook it simple, hot and fast or however you want to, and then slice it thin against the grain and then toss it with your marinade. Hmm. And that's going to yield better taste quality because when you have meat that's been soaked in uh, in water-based sauces and with a lot of sugar in it, the sugar is going to burn. That's going to be the equivalent of the crust, but it's not going to get that deep, complex flavor that you actually get from the caramelization, the Maillard reaction of the, of the protein itself. God, I love listening to you talk. Um, I I just so my favorite way to eat steak has always been without any any type of sauce. I will admit that I do like the Primal Kitchen makes like a steak sauce that I really like. It tastes kind of like A1, but mm -hmm. with like better ingredients. Mm -hmm. I do. I like that. But generally, nine times out of ten, just that Maldon salt, that big, thick, flake salt 
on a steak for me. And then I ate at a restaurant uh, fairly recently in LA called Via Veneto's um, here in Santa Monica. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever had like a really nicely done steak with extra virgin olive oil as a sauce mm -hmm. with like yeah. a few drops, like just a, so yeah. like, like two tablespoons of extra, extra virgin olive oil and then a few drops of balsamic vinegar. Mm -hmm. And it was like the best thing ever game game changer, game changer. yeah, yeah. and i learned and correct you probably know this way better than i do because you've lived in this part of the world um but it was a, is it was it is that sort of like a tuscan yeah. mode of eating steak is that yeah. well it's also interesting you know that's a technique that you're going to use in places where the fat is less prevalent naturally in the meat hmm. okay so it's interesting like we would never we don't there's not many fat-based dressings for our steaks. I mean, people do like a bernet, like a butter sometimes, like an anchovy butter on a cool steak. But in general, the American meat has so much fat in it that you, if anything, you want more of like a steak sauce, which is more of an acid-based. You That's... want acid and sugar to help you handle all the flavor, all the fat. Interesting. But in cultures where you have a leaner meat, so that is that that I, that's region is in it's in Tuscany and the traditional beef is the Maremma breed, which is a, one of the great weight oxen, these beautiful, huge beasts. Um, the Kianina is another one of those, um, the Piedmontese. So there's a, the, they actually descended from the Russian steppe oxen. That's a beautiful type of, it's a work animal. So uh, historically there was like cows that were bred to be tractors, right? Move, move things around. There's cows that were bred for milk and cows that were bred for meat. And so that animal is a traditional tractor breed. It was used to work the pastures to pull plows in central Italy. And so the musculature is super lean. Hmm. I mean, it's like all red, no veins of fat. So what you're going to do with that, then you've got this great beefy flavor, but you add the olive oil because you're adding that fat afterwards. Adding the fat. Yeah, I had it with a with a ribeye and it was fire. And ri ribeyes are pretty fatty. But when you're buying grass-fed, grass-finished beef, like what Belcampo produces, I know it's probably it's it's going to be leaner in general, mm -hmm. right, than like Absolutely. your typical Absolutely. No, it's got like always like 40% less fat. Wow. And sometimes we do get, I mean, occasionally you have outliers, you'll get a, what's like a prime grade because prime is not a, you know, a grade around quality. Prime just has to do with how much fat it has. Yeah. So our meat is typically, if we're grading it, like it's going to be selector choice, which has nothing to do. People think prime is like cleaner and better and better sourced. No, prime is simply about how much fat is available inside the musculature. Hmm. Okay. So that prime grade um, is something that for most grass-fed producers, I would have to raise animals till they're much, much older to get there. Um, but but you actually, when you're using a grass-fed steak, a fat-based finish, also just melted butter is bomb on steaks. So good. And also, and, and another great thing to use just in terms of natural flavor builds, and people get on this, there's a little bit of obsession, especially in SoCal with fish sauce, right? Mm. People love fish sauce. But I love um, anchovies and salted anchovies um, in a steak combination and with pork. So if you look at things that are going to naturally build on what we like about steak, part of it is this rich umami flavor, which is that like kind of undergrowth, mushroomy deepness. And so if you take anchovies, you actually enhance that flavor. Plus, you really it's a nice like omega three boost. It'd be another amazing steak sauce for you to try at home. Just get that nice hard sear, fry it in its own fat cap. And then just soak a salted anchovy or take like a jarred anchovy and um, cut it up and melt it in some butter. So just like cook it, but like the butter's gonna, it's not gonna get crispy. It'll just kind of soften and smash it with the tines of a fork while you're doing that. So maybe it's like two tablespoons of butter and like two anchovies and pour that over the steak. And that to me is like the OG steak sauce because steak sauce 
actually historically includes anchovies wow. um, in it because it's got that really, really rich umami flavor. Isn't that, isn't it, aren't anchovies like a, a staple ingredient in Worcestershire sauce? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that kind of like complex, fishy, like umami flavor is so great combined mm. with steak. And there's also a nutrition powerhouse. Too. Could you do, could you do that anchovy thing with olive oil? Same, same totally. concept? Totally, exactly wow. same thing. Yeah. And you can also just, you can also blender. I also will make a sauce really simple with um, capers. Mm anchovies, olive oil, uh, lemon rind, and um, and parsley. And just grind that up in my Vitamix, like make a little green smoothie and put that on top of eggs, on top of grilled meats, on top of like kind of boring chicken breast. You know, it's, it's a great combination. That's where if you focus on the sauces that you can have fresh afterwards with the cooked meat, it's always going to be more delicious. I also find that that saucing your meat after it's cooked is a much better way to end up with great tasting leftovers hmm. because that kind of like encapsulating the meat with like a parsley, olive oil, lemon sauce, it's a great way to hold it in the fridge hmm. and it'll taste really good the next day. So it's like makes it more snackable, more yummy for your for your leftovers as well. Oh my God, this conversation has made me so hungry. Come on. And we were just eating before we started rolling. Um, well, this was so fun. Uh, always, always learn from you. You're amazing. We're about out of time. Um, but before we wrap up, where can listeners find you on social media and how can they learn more about Belcampo and potentially even place an order or two? They should go on belcampo.com. They can buy their suet and then they can go to at Belcampo Meat Co, our Instagram handle and find out how to render the suet. Wow. That's the pulp. We, we offer a lot of recipes that are, I'm Anya Fernald. At Instagram as well, and I do a lot of recipes and lots of braising on my account. It's kind of like a braising all the time. Yeah, I love following you. And you now ship like all over the U.S. Yeah, so COVID's been a major pivot for my business. I mean, we we've increased our retail uh, e-commerce business thirtyfold. Wow, thirtyfold. Yeah. Wow. So it's been it's been exciting, and we're just going to keep on growing because mm. I think during COVID, a lot of people got more comfortable with having meat shipped to their home. A lot of people working from home still, and you know, just changes. So we started to just open that door, and now I think we've got like eighty different products on the website. Wow. Compared to when I talked to you this time last year, I had maybe eight. You know, mm. we were just so, so small. So we've just met that. And we're really focused on that consumer that's doing um, maybe on like a, you know, paleo or keto protocol. So we offer a lot of um, different, you know, just like kind of unusual meats, bavettes, picanhas, just like fun stuff, copa steaks. So you can mix it up. If you're if you're on a fairly protein intensive diet and are just like, I don't want to have another night of ribeyes or hot dogs or whatever, we've got a huge range of cuts because we process all of our own animals and our own plant. We sort of got the whole range of all the cuts. Love it. I support anything I can do to help Belcampo, you know, go even further. I'm game because I love the way you treat your animals and the quality of the food. I mean, I like I mean, I cons I eat Belcamp. I'm lucky in that I get to eat Belcampo meat all the time. I live in LA where you guys have stores. So I'm just super grateful that you now have this robust e-com offering so that people can feed their families your meat anywhere. It's huge. It feels so powerful to have now the production to support all these different families. It's also really cool. You know, so many of our customers buy almost all their meat from us now. Wow. So it's it's amazing. And those chickens we were talking about, we sell those as well. So it's neat to to kind of feel like we're supporting a really um, like a key part of health for a lot of people. That's that's something I'm I'm feeling just proud of. I'm thank COVID's been a, a challenge, right? No doubt. But one one there's like where every door closes, another opens, and that's been the open door for for us is the ability to connect directly, supply directly, and get into people's homes with our product. Love that. Well, thanks for being here. 
means Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Of course. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for tuning in. Highlight your favorite quote from Anya or I. Tag us both. Check out Belcampo. Text me. Let me know what you thought about this episode of the show. 310-299-9401. Leave a rating and review on iTunes. Would very much appreciate that. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.